I did not score high enough on my ACT to get into Harvard, and I'm also not an unsung pioneer in the music industry. I'm just a schnook. Well, hello, everybody. Thank you for tuning in. Happy 2022. At least I hope it's happy. Uh, It's very testy so far this year. I yelled at 2021 for taking so many people, uh, including my dad and very tragically the young guy who uh, helped us out big time with his uh, cremation and everything, Wayne Shuey Jr. Really nice guy. Oh my God, I feel so bad for his family. He's such a nice guy. He came down with COVID and uh, unfortunately it uh, took him. We also lost Betty White, of course. Oh my God, just a couple of weeks before her birthday. In 2022, we're already losing people. I just learned that Peter Robbins, who voiced Charlie Brown, unfortunately committed suicide um, at the age of 65. And, God, who else did we lose? Meatloaf. We lost Meatloaf. Oh, True story. One day when my wife Lisa and I were hanging out in uh, Wicker Park in Bucktown on the near north side. Well, let me tell you something. Uh, That part of town, you do not want to try to park. But unfortunately, we drove there one day and I was driving around looking for a place to park. And I finally found a residential street that didn't have one of those. uh, You're only allowed to park here if you have this permit on your car. Found a spot. And as I was making my way to North Avenue where all this stuff was, or maybe it was Milwaukee Avenue, I don't remember. There was a guy in a pickup truck pulled over and yelled over to me. Hey, you, you know what you look like? And I said, Philip Seymour Hoffman? I get that all the time. He said, no, 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 this some other guy. Oh, my God, what's his name? I can't think of his name. He's an entertainer. Um, Meatloaf. Yeah, Meatloaf. I don't know what the heck he thinks Meatloaf looks like, but I certainly do not look like him, except, uh, well, maybe my physique. I have his physique, but that's just about it. Uh, yeah, he's got... Man, I'm such a downer today. I am so sorry, ladies and gentlemen. I will change the subject right now. Other than that, I'm doing okay. Some good news, really good news, is that, uh, well, my mother, every Christmas, she makes some amazing fudge. And she had told me that she just follows the recipe on the back of Kraft Marshmallow Cream. Well, I tried it, and it wasn't right. It was never right. It was too sludgy and just didn't have this certain zing to it that my mom's fudge always had. I said, Mom, do you, are you sure you follow that recipe? That's the recipe you follow? She said, yeah, that's the same recipe. But I do make a few changes. Oh, my God. Mom, you're killing me. Well, for a long time, she said, okay, I'm going to show you how I do it so you can do it, too. And several times I scheduled time to do that with her. And she's like, Ashley, can we not do that today? I'm too tired. Finally, finally did it. I went down to visit her on Saturday. I said, Mom, let's do the fudge. She said, okay, let's do it. I'll show you everything you need to know. Oh my God, it turned out, it, I didn't do I didn't actually make it. She actually did it. I thought I was going to actually do it under her directions, but I took copious notes. So now I know my mother's fudge recipe and I'm really excited to try it, except I still have the entire batch of fudge that she had whipped up because she didn't want it. <laughs> I said, just give it to Scott, you know, and he, cause isn't he going to be visiting? So she said, I don't know when, when your brother's coming, just take it. So yeah. <laughs> Oh, well, but I'm I'm really excited about that, and uh, I'm excited to be talking to you all. It's been seemingly a long time, even though it was just twice last month. But it occurred to me, crap, January is almost coming to an end. I better get an episode out. So here goes. The first bit of my life that I want to talk about today is a job that I had for a long time that I absolutely loved, 
partly because it was so weird, partly because it was a lot of fun, partly because it was good money, and partly because of the people that I encountered. So I'm going to call this first segment, SAT is a four-letter word. It doesn't really bother me if somebody takes advantage of me to make money. In fact, I have a lot of respect for someone who pulls that off. I even go so far as to admire when someone actually tells me up front. I mean, after all, why not? Sometime in 2001, I believe, my office mate said to me, You'd probably make a great SAT prep instructor. Well, I'm only a gentleman, so I listened. It's with a small group of kids, you pretty much make your own schedule, and it's a very casual environment. Best of all, the hourly rate was just too high to pass up. It's even higher if you tutor students one-on-one. -on -one. Was it too good to be true? In a way, yeah, it was, because quite simply, I just didn't feel I had the time. Well, that is until, for various reasons, I quit my job later that year. I had no promise of another job, but I didn't care. This was when Lisa was still working for AT&T and was making a really good salary that could easily support both of us. And I asked my office mate, Hey, uh, remember that SAT teaching gig you brought up? Uh, tell me more about that. Well, I'm going to refer to my office mate as Anita, not her real name. Anita told me to contact the company, whom uh, I'll just call Joe Bob's Test Prep. It's not that I have anything against the company. Um, I just, for various reasons, want to protect both myself and Joe Bob's Test Prep. So, I called Joe Bob's Test Prep and found that they had two teacher trainings coming up. One in August, which I'd have to miss because of a trip I'd already booked months prior, and another one right after Christmas. Perfect. The first step in the process would be to take a content quiz, uh, basically a very, very miniaturized 10-minute version of the SAT, then do an audition, and then pass the training. Anita told me she wanted me to call her if I passed the quiz and the audition before I go through training. Now, the audition, basically, everybody who was uh, looking to become a Joe Bob's test prep instructor would meet for a group interview. The interview would basically be your audition. You'd come in prepared to teach a topic of your choice to the other people applying. They would act as your students. The people running the audition wanted to see how you handled a classroom. They wanted to see if you would actually call on people, if you would make them do stuff, if you'd walk around the room and just basically not lecture. They want people to be a little bit more fun than that. So I thought about it. I didn't quite know what I should teach. So I thought, well, see, I'm a music guy. Let me see if I can do some kind of lesson in keeping time or rhythm or something. So I did. I passed. I passed both the math and the reading quiz. Uh, they really needed math instructors, so I took both quizzes just to make myself a little bit more marketable. And as she requested, I called Anita and let her know that I was going to be training. Now, I don't know why Anita couldn't tell me all this stuff before, but what she wanted to tell me was that during training, I was basically going to be the student in an SAT program, a simulated SAT program, and the trainers would have us teach the lessons back. She said, just pay attention to the trainers and parrot back exactly what they say and do. One thing she warned me about, though, was that the feedback would be really harsh. Anita told me, I'm talking basic training in the army harsh. <laughs> Basically, everybody would get trashed to pieces. She said, I just wanted you to be prepared for that. Oh, well. 
Fact is, I need a job. Still got to do it. So let's see what happens. While I was on the phone with Anita, I said, oh, by the way, do you happen to get any kickback from uh, recruiting me in this position here? And she said, yes, actually, I do. I get a $50 referral bonus. So I said, that a girl. <laughs> I'm telling you, I appreciate when people do that. I really do. I, I don't mind helping people get some extra buckage. The training was at a school in Somerset, New Jersey, right outside of New Brunswick. It consisted of three weekends, one weekend Saturday and Sunday, and then two more weekends just Saturday. When I arrived, it was quickly apparent what kind of company I was about to train for. I was directed to get my picture taken. The photographer was a big guy in sweatpants. Turned out he was actually running the training, and his name was Chris. Chris gave the opening remarks and talked about the company's history and what is expected of the instructors. The rule was, if you're not 15 minutes early for your scheduled class, you're late. If you have a problem getting there at 5.45 for your 6 o'clock class, leave 15 minutes early. If you still have a problem, leave half an hour early. If you still have a problem, leave an hour early. There was a strict no-substitutes rule. If you sign up to teach a course, you are expected to be there for every single class session. If somebody heard you say certain things to students or parents, uh, one of them being, Oh, I'm so excited. This is my first class with Joe Bob's test prep. You would be fired on the spot. While I was listening to Chris talk about these rules, my first thought was, Man, what a hard ass. My second thought, however, was, But he's right. Now, it's not that Chris was all hard-ass. His introduction had a lot of humor, and sometimes he'd casually drop some New Jersey profanity. One example of the humor he used, he told us all to take copious notes. He said, For those of you who will be teaching math, copious means plentiful. Chris told us what to expect during training, and he pretty much reiterated Anita's advice of repeating back exactly what the trainers say and do, including any jokes they make. And he flat out said, and I quote, your first teach back is going to suck because, well, we would have to do our first teach backs the very next day. Yes, that means we had to go home at five o'clock that night, then come back at 9 a.m. the next morning prepared to teach a lesson. They understood that we were newbies and didn't have much prep time. Ergo, our teach back evaluation scores would be weighted. The closer to the end of the training, the more our teach back scores mattered. Next up was Anthony, uh, not his real name, by the way, and Anthony was the executive director of the New Jersey office. He was a former executive at a major telecom company, but he moved into test prep for a change of scenery. He gave us a little bit more backstory about Joe Bob's test prep, which apparently was started literally in the company president's mother's living room. When Joe Bob was a college student, he'd actually have high school students come over to his mom's house, and he'd teach them the skills he used on the SAT when he was admitted to an Ivy League school. Stories of Joe Bob, uh, by the way, that's not his real name either, but stories about him are legendary. I heard about somebody who went on a company retreat literally her first week on the job and saw smoke pouring out of the elevator at the hotel. She thought the building was on fire. The elevator opened, and there was Joe Bob with a cigarette with weird-smelling smoke coming out of it and laughing his ass off. I also heard that uh, the big joke was that he always wanted to go public in the worst way, he always said. And when the company did go public, he did just that. Went public in the worst way. And this is the kind of guy Joe Bob was. He registered a website domain under the name of the company's biggest competitor. When that company reached out to Joe Bob when they found out that he owned the domain name, 
they asked him to surrender the domain so they could have it. And he said, sure, uh, just one condition, buy me a case of beer. Well, this rival test prep company said, that's ridiculous. We're not going to buy you beer. And uh, because of that, Joe Bob held that domain name hostage for quite a long time. And as a result, the rival company's website URL was a modified version of their name. And something I found out long after is that Joe Bob at first had a particular rule in place for SAT instructors. Drop an F-bomb once during the first class session. By the time I got to this training, though, that rule had long since been abolished, but we were still encouraged to accidentally say a mild curse word now and then just to keep the kids' attention. Damn it, I broke the chuck. Oh, shoot, sorry, everybody. Forget I said that. (laughs) Anthony talked about how rigorous the training was in New Jersey, more intense than the training in any other Joe Bob's test prep office in the country. Ergo, if you moved outside of New Jersey and wished to teach for Joe Bob elsewhere, the local office where you were would hire you sight unseen. Well, that little tidbit caught my attention because even as early as January 2002, I was yearning to move to Chicago after being in Jersey for only three years. After Anthony's speech, we were broken up into two groups, one verbal instructors, one math instructors. Math instructor training would be led by a guy named Faisal, Sure enough, he taught the entire course over the four days of training, periodically stepping out of teacher mode to explain his techniques and why he did certain things he did. The overall feel was, well, I hesitate to say casual because I don't think it was even up to the level of casual. It was just plain fun. We were told to intentionally make the classes as fun as possible so the kids would be engaged. After all, the last thing they want after being in school for seven hours is to go through yet more classroom instruction. SAT instructors were the students' friends first, so we were told that we were on a first-name basis with the students. No Mr., Mrs., Doctor, or anything like that. When I was teaching, my name was to be Sean. And during his opening spiel, Chris told us specifically to dress down. He said if you arrive to your classroom the first night of the course and you're wearing a tie, you already lost them. Clean, intact jeans and a tasteful t-shirt would be sufficient. What really blew my mind, though, were the techniques that they were teaching us. There were so many weird ways of doing the math that actually made it faster a lot of the time. The first technique we were taught involved something called the candy store problem. Because it's company property, I'm not going to go over the candy store problem on this podcast, but it was a way to explain how to deal with algebra. I think the general attitude in that company was, if you can't teach the candy store problem, then you are not going to make it as a Joe Bob's test prep instructor. There was one technique in particular called the ratio box, and again, I'm not going to explain it, but it was just amazing because it made calculating ratios incredibly easy. After Faisal taught the ratio box, I actually said out loud, why didn't they teach us this way in high school? My wife, Lisa, by the way, she eventually also went through SAT teacher training just to make a few bucks on the side. When she came home one day from training, hand to God, upon walking through the front door, the first thing she said was, why didn't they teach us the ratio box in school? I said, I know, but it was so cool to learn these math techniques. I'd always doubted that you could actually prepare for standardized tests because, well, how would you know what problems were going to be on the test? I mean, they were chosen from pools of thousands at random, right? I mean, yeah, you know what kind of knowledge is covered, but would test-specific preparation actually work? 
It didn't take me long to learn that, oh yeah, it would. Because what standardized tests are designed to do isn't to test you over what you should have already learned. They're designed actually to weed you out of potential target schools. These were not intelligence tests by any means. If they tested you over anything, it was simply how to take the test. That's it. One thing we were all taught to do was to totally trash the Educational Testing Service, or ETS. They are the company that the College Board commissioned to write and administer the SAT. Basically, it was part of demystifying the test, making the students feel like they were starting to get the upper hand. There were all kinds of remarks about how ETS needs money to fund their mansions and indoor swimming pools. And really, when you learn about how these tests work and what they actually measure, the defamatory remarks are not necessarily uncalled for. And uh, judging from what I personally saw firsthand, uh, also the uh, cracks about uh, funding their in-ground swimming pools, I once drove past ETS's headquarters in Princeton, New Jersey during my lunch break. I didn't know it was right where it was. And man, that place is a freaking palace. There's no way they're the nonprofit they claim they are. But anyway, getting back to uh, training, as Chris promised, my first teach back did indeed suck, as did everybody else's. But unlike what Anita warned me about, the feedback was actually very encouraging and nothing military grade. And as the training went on, my teach back scores drastically improved. In fact, when they split us up into small groups for teach backs on the last day of training, after everybody in my group did their teach backs, the evaluator told us, Look, if uh, any of you are worried as to whether we're going to hire you, judging from what I just saw, none of you has anything to worry about. You are all really good. I think the most memorable teachback experience was on the third day of training. When we split up into smaller groups, my group was introduced to Andre. He was our group's teachback evaluator that day. Andre wore a black leather jacket with a metal band with the words The Executioner engraved on it right above the breast pocket. His hair was slicked back. When he spoke to us before starting the teachbacks, he exuded kind of an um, implicitly threatening attitude, but you could kind of tell that it was an act. Before we began, he said, Look, I hate math. I don't understand math. My life would be so much better without it. Your job is to not only make me get math, but also enjoy it. During teachbacks, the other trainees would act as our students, and sometimes so would the evaluator. Well, Andre also played the role of a student. Many times during my teachback, he would say, Whoa! Of course, I couldn't let it go without commenting on the Joey Lawrence impersonation. There were times that he would interrupt me with a question. Excuse me, sir? I would say, Yes, you have a question, and please don't call me sir. I work for a living. And without missing a beat, Andre said, Okay, sergeant! After I finished my teachback, uh, this one was about geometry, uh, Andre's comments to me, possibly verbatim. I clearly explained what I expected. I expected you to make me understand math. I expected you to make me like math. Kudos. Whew. Oh, and uh, by the way, Andre was eventually elected mayor of Patterson, New Jersey. Go figure. The thing about the training was that not only were we evaluated on teachbacks, but we trainees also had to do evaluations. We had to evaluate Chris's and Anthony's speeches. We had to evaluate each of the teachback leaders. We had to evaluate Faisal. 
We had to evaluate the facilities and how comfortable and clean they were. And man, that was a pain. Just train us, okay? Let us get on with the day. And uh, after training was over, we were treated to dinner at Szechuan Gourmet, an amazing Chinese restaurant in downtown New Brunswick that sadly is no more. And sure enough, somebody in the group had to yell out, Do we have to evaluate dinner too? But all through training, one thing kept going through my mind. I really want to work for this company full-time. They are a fun bunch. Anyway, I passed training and I signed up to teach a few SAT courses at the shore. The first one I ever taught was in an office building in Freehold. One thing we were told to do was that on the first day of class, ask the students, Show of hands, who really doesn't want to be here? Don't worry, you can be honest with me. One student, whom I'll call Ronnie, uh, partly to keep her anonymous and partly because I really don't remember her name, but it wasn't Ronnie because I never taught a student named Ronnie in my life, uh, Ronnie did not hesitate to put her hand up. Couldn't help but notice she had a monkey's button on her backpack, though. Now, before I go on, the way we were doing SAT courses was that if a course had enough students to split off into multiple groups and therefore we needed multiple instructors, one instructor would be designated the site director. The site director would be in charge of distributing materials, delivering a brief opening lecture at every class section, and generally keeping in touch with the other instructors after every class meeting. The site director would get a per-student bonus for the extra responsibility and a stipend for occasional snacks and a last-day-of-course party. After the first day of the course was over, I told my site director, Tina, about Ronnie when I asked that magic question, who doesn't want to be here? Tina said, just you watch, she'll be the one person who trashes us in her evaluations. Sure enough, when it was time for mid-course evaluations, we went through the responses, and uh, Tina and I both got high marks from everybody, except Ronnie. <laughs> there were two things in particular that I remember about that first group that I ever taught. Now, mind you, this was spring 2002, just for uh, gauging what was going on at the time. Now, to demonstrate how ratios work, and using that ratio box that I mentioned before, the example we would use to introduce it would be how to make a screwdriver. Yes, I'm talking about the alcoholic beverage. Yes, these are high school students. Yes, they cannot legally drink alcohol. But Faisal told us to use the screwdriver example. He said it was perfectly fine, and he pointed out a place in the course manual that the students get that kind of makes a snide comment about getting high from the ink in the SAT test book. Faisal ruled that if the company was going to allow that verbiage in the book, then they probably have no problem with briefly talking about making a screwdriver to explain a ratio. So there I am explaining ratios, and I say, okay, for example, we have the ratio of orange juice to vodka in a screwdriver. And uh, while I was writing that on the board, one of my students said out loud, that's a pretty weak screwdriver. <laughs> I asked him, how do you know? And uh, conveniently, he didn't have an answer for me. <laughs> but the other thing that really sticks out in my mind about that class was uh, during the break, I overheard uh, one student having a conversation with another, and she was talking about her dad, uh, how she was at the concert for New York. And I kind of overheard that, and I said, oh, that sounds really cool. And she told me that her brother got up on stage and talked to Rudy Giuliani. And at the end of the show, both she and her brother were on stage. So... When I got home, I put our recording of the concert for New York in, and I watched the very end of it. And sure enough, there she was. She got to shake hands with Paul McCartney. Oh my God. How freaking cool is that? Then it occurred to me. 
The reason that she was there in the first place was that her father was a Port Authority cop who was killed on September 11th, just a few months earlier. That would explain a lot of conversations that I overheard her have. Now, we instructors were told to keep class engaging and frequently call on students by name. One time when I called on this particular student, she said, um, I'd rather not talk today. So I thought in the back of my mind, okay, maybe she's having a hard time because it's September 11th and everything. So I said, okay, no problem. And I just moved on. Now, while the first SAT course I ever taught was still in progress in Freehold, I started teaching another one in Middletown. Now, remember, we were not allowed to tell students that we were first-timers, but it was fine to tell other Joe Bob's test prep instructors that we were first-timers. So I told Alan, the site director, that uh, I was brand new to the company, and uh, the course went off without a hitch, just like the freehold course. Um, I did have one troublesome student. A kid never did any homework. He didn't show up to class all that much. In fact, he fell asleep once when he did show up. And on the last day of class, he had the nerve to come up to me during the break and say, Hey, uh, Sean, uh, do you have any tips for me as to how to improve my score? I mean, for God's sake, kid. I mean, this whole 10-week course was nothing but tips on how to improve your score. But anyway, um, next thing I heard was that they wanted some MCAT instructors, especially verbal. MCAT, for those of you who don't know, is the test that college students take who want to go into medical school. Now, this is a huge leap, and uh, one of the reasons it kind of piqued my interest was that the hourly rate for MCAT instructors was uh, a few dollars an hour higher than SAT instructors, so of course, I heard a cash register sound in my head. The MCAT is mainly science. It has physics, chemistry, and uh, biology, and I'm terrible in all those, especially chemistry, but there's also a verbal section and a writing section, and that's where they were really in need of instructors. So I took the content test, and um, the director of graduate programs called me and said, "Um, we saw your score, and yeah, please train with us as soon as humanly possible so we can get you in front of a classroom. (laughs) So I'm not going to talk about that training, but it wasn't as intensive as SAT was. But there was just as much bashing of AAMC, the Association of American Medical Colleges, um, as there was of ETS in the SAT training. From what I could tell, AAMC is actually a pretty good and very helpful organization, but only once you actually get accepted into medical school. But anyway, I finished MCAT training, and I signed up to teach a course in Freehold, the same place where my SAT course was. And who was one of my MCAT students? Alan, the site director from the Middletown SAT course that I had just taught. I thought, oh crap, I told him I was brand new to the company while I was teaching an SAT course. What's he going to think about me teaching this grad level course now? (laughs) I found that MCAT students can be quite diverse, not just in culture, religion, and race, but also (laughs) common sense, really. Case in point, one of my students, whom I'll just call Kowalski, again, not his real name, told me on the first day of class that he wanted to get his verbal score up to five because there was a medical school in the Bahamas that would accept students with a verbal score of five or higher. He said, Sean, I want to surf during the day and go to school at night. Well, here's the thing. At least back then, each subject on the MCAT was scored between one and 15. And uh, you really want to get as close to a 15 as possible. And what we told students was that your target minimum score should be at least an 8. Now, remember, Kowalski said he wanted to get his score up to 5. 
Sure enough, the diagnostic test he took at the beginning of the course had him at only a three. I could understand a score that low if, say, he didn't speak English as his first language, but he was a native of the United States and only spoke English. I could also understand if he had a learning disability, but if he did, he did not offer that information. Of course, I was never going to ask that. Well, Kowalski's attendance was pretty spotty. Part of our course guarantee was that you had to attend all classes and take all diagnostic tests, so already he blew his guarantee. If he didn't get a satisfactory score on his MCAT, he was screwed. If he wanted to work with us again, he'd have to fork over more money. I also learned that um, you get a variety of essay writing skills, too. And based on some of the practice homework essays I got from students, I started keeping a list of people who, assuming they would get into medical school in the first place, I would make sure to never seek out their services. Because, well, I just cannot deal with people who cannot use the language they're supposed to be able to properly. Two students in particular, um, Neil and Doug, I'll just call, they would have some, uh, some doozies. Poorly spelled words, very bad grammar, questionable ways to respond to the essay prompts. It was so bad that I would actually be in tears laughing. So much so that Lisa would actually meet me at the front door every time I got home from teaching MCAT because she wanted me to share some essays with her that she could laugh at. And again, it's not like there was a language barrier. These were guys who only knew English. <laughs> One time I had everybody in class pair up to... uh practice some essay writing, and unfortunately, Neil and Doug decided to pair off together, and I overheard one of them say, I like your ideas, and it was all I could do to stop from yelling, no! Now, people like Doug and Neil, I could easily identify that they were going to be these kind of people, those who would most assuredly give me unintentionally entertaining essays would be white males, they would always sit in the back of the room, they would snack on a sucker constantly, they would wear a baseball cap backwards and would often be wearing a co-ed naked or Big Johnson t-shirt. I remember those. I might be dating myself here. And again, English was not only their first language, but their only language. Now, the way that MCAT essays worked, I don't think the MCAT has essays anymore, but you were given two essays, 30 minutes for each essay, and each essay would have a prompt. The prompt would be something along the lines of, the primary purpose of education should be to teach skills, not values. And you would use that prompt as kind of a jumping off point. We would tell students use specific concrete examples from history, current events, science, world affairs, etc. Well, either Neil or Doug, I don't remember which one, gave me an essay that ended on a theoretical example of the United States and France being at war. Which, uh, by the way, goes against the specific instructions we would give our students to not use theoretical examples and only use real examples. This person was writing about how France does not oppose a threat to the U.S. Um, I think he meant pose a threat to the U.S. The final sentence of his essay read, and I quote, And even if they did, well, it's just France. <sighs> Lord. Another essay one of these guys gave me talked about reprimations. I think he meant reparations. But I would teach to my students the importance of using specific concrete examples. Chris, the same guy who led the SAT training, once told me that on any test that has an essay, you could use September 11th, the U.S. Civil War, or Martin Luther King as an example with just about any prompt, because all those topics fit with so many categories. Justice, war, history, religion, and so forth. And the thing is, 
essays were graded by hand, and because there were thousands upon thousands of essays to be gone through, the graders didn't spend much time on any single essay, maybe two or three minutes. So they don't really have time to do fact-checking. So if you don't know a particular detail and you're off by just a tiny bit, you'll probably be okay. Well, I had one student ask me, what if I just make up an example? I told him, you gotta be pretty skilled in lying because they'd probably be able to tell if you were making something up. And he said, well, I'll tell you what, for one of my homework essays, I'm gonna make something up and I want you to let me know when you think you spot what I made up. Well, about six weeks later, after I graded some homework essays and handed them back, I pointed to this guy's essay and said, this is the example you said that you were going to make up, isn't it? He said, yeah, how did you know? Well, folks, let me tell you what was in this dude's essay. It said something along the lines of, for example, Dr. Ryan Stewart noted that 12% of people suffer pain after experiencing this trauma, 24.3% after experiencing that trauma, etc. I said, Nobody is named Ryan Stewart. Who is this Ryan Stewart person anyway? Is that a friend of yours or something? He laughed and said, actually, yeah. Also, given that you are not allowed to bring anything with you into the testing center and you have nothing to refer to, it's all in your brain, how in the world is somebody going to remember 24.3%, 12.7%? Sometimes a student would obviously be offended by an essay prompt. The thing is, they're not meant to be offensive at all. One practice essay I got from a student actually discussed how she, as a female American, felt that she was getting the shit end of the stick. And uh, she was thoughtful enough to put the word in quotation marks. Well, I took a thick red permanent marker, circled that word, and wrote NO with four exclamation points in huge letters because you do not want to put a profanity on your essay. Even if you're quoting someone, do not ever put a profanity on anything that's related to college entrance. Turned out she was actually one of the best students I had in the class. Her diagnostic scores got really high, and she did write some pretty impressive essays after that. But one thing that really hurt... Alan, the SAT site director who was among my first MCAT students. In one essay he handed me, he mentioned Tylenol five times. And each mention of the word Tylenol, it was spelled T-Y-L-O-N-E-L. Tylonel. Ugh. And once, just to change things up so he wouldn't keep saying Tylenol, or Tylonel, whatever, he tried to use the generic term, acetaminophen, which was uh, just a spelling disaster. I mean, dude, come on, if you're going to be a doctor, Tylenol and acetaminophen, that's the most basic medication in the universe. You should already know how to spell that. Whatever the case, though, he did get into medical school. I know because a few years later, his girlfriend was one of my students, and she told me where he landed a residency. Now, basically, from this point on, I'm just going to kind of reflect on some memorable experiences I had teaching test prep. I'm going to keep it in the MCAT category for now. Uh, remember Kowalski, the guy who wanted to go to the Bahamas and surf during the day and go to school at night? Well, because he hardly ever showed up to class, he wasn't able to improve his score, so he actually took the course again. He told me the first time that he took the course, his parents were covering the cost, and because he blew it off, they told him, well, you're on your own if you want to take it again. And so he said that because he paid for the retake out of his own pocket, it would give him reason to make sure he came to class so he didn't waste his own money. Well, 
I always kept my students abreast of when registration deadline was. Every single class session, I would say, don't forget the registration deadline for the April test is such and such a date. Well, after the registration deadline for that particular MCAT he was prepping for passed, I suddenly never saw Kowalski again. I can only conclude from the habits that he demonstrated from the both times I taught him, he likely forgot to register and ergo was not going to be able to take the test. And uh, kind of going aside here, some time ago when I was having my physical, my doctor asked me if it was okay if uh, she sent a couple of medical students to take care of it because, well, it's a learning hospital. And I said, yeah, absolutely. Now, mind you, this was at Northwestern. That's where I go for any and all of my medical needs. So these two girls are taking all my measurements and asking me questions and everything. And um, I was just making small talk with them. I said, hey, where do you go to med school? And I realized that was the dumbest question I possibly could have asked. And they said, Northwestern. Um, yeah, where was I getting my um, medical service? Oh, yeah, Northwestern Memorial. Duh. But I told them how I had been an MCAT instructor and that I had a student who told me he wanted to go to a medical school in the Bahamas and surf during the day and go to school at night. I said, look, you two are in medical school now. What is the likelihood he would have time to just wipe his own butt, let alone go surfing? And they said, actually, uh, first year, probably not, but maybe second or third year. Yeah, it's probably plausible. So I thought that was interesting. But um, anyway, getting back to uh, working for Joe Bob's test prep, I also taught GRE, GMAT, and ACT courses over the years. The GRE is essentially a grown-up version of the SAT. It's taken by college students who want to get into grad school. And at the time I started teaching those courses, the GRE was also made by the fine folks at ETS. In fact, the material on the GRE was so similar to the SAT that when I went through GRE training, there were so many subjects that came up when our trainer said, well, for this one, just do the SAT lecture. GMAT is the test that college students take if they're looking to get into business school. So basically, if you want an MBA, you're probably going to have to take the GMAT. As for the ACT, well, I should explain a few things. At least back then, the SAT was the preferred test for those on the East Coast and the West Coast. The ACT was the preferred test for everybody in between. Statistically, more colleges accepted ACT scores than those who accepted SAT scores. But uh, regardless, of uh, one big difference between those two tests is that SAT was and probably still is basically a bunch of trap questions, not real knowledge, which is one reason that I had always emphasized to all my students, especially SAT students, that these tests are not intelligence tests. But the ACT was a little bit closer to actual material that you were taught in school. Shortly after I moved to Chicago, I called up the Chicago office and I said, hey, I worked for the office in Princeton, New Jersey for a number of years and uh, I'm moving to Chicago and uh, do you have any ACT trainings coming up? And uh, they said, yeah, we have one uh, coming up in October. I said, sign me up. So I'm going through the training. Mind you, the trainer knew that I was an experienced Joe Bob's instructor. I told everybody during our icebreaker that I'd already been teaching for the company a number of years. So at the end of the first day of training, the trainer is doling out teach back assignments. What does he give me? The candy store problem. Really? 
You, I've been teaching for several years and you're giving me basically something I can sleep through. Okay, I'm not going to complain. And of course, sure enough, my first teach back was easy as dirt. But anyway, um, speaking of moving to Chicago and calling the office, um, I found out that Anthony's assertion that if you're trained in the New Jersey office, other Joe Bob locations will hire you sight unseen. Uh, that's not really 100% true. I still had to be pretty strongly vetted. And um, Chicago's hiring standards were different from New Jersey's. For one thing, after you get a few courses under your belt, you can also be a tutor for the company, meaning you work one-on-one -on -one with students on their own schedules, literally going to their homes or an agreed-upon public location. You would make extra money per hour working one-on-one -on -one than you did teaching in a classroom. There were three levels of tutors. There was level one, level two, and level three. The only real difference was how experienced the tutor was. A level three tutor was the highest paid tutor and really could probably make a good year's salary on tutoring just three kids at a time and not working many hours. But a level three tutor was not necessarily more knowledgeable than a level one newbie. And we were upfront with customers about it. We told them that's the difference, just the number of years they've been tutoring. After just a, maybe about a year and a half, the New Jersey office promoted me to level two tutor. And that was a really nice hourly rate, I gotta say. However, the Chicago office had specific requirements for each level. A level two tutor was required to have a master's degree. I do not have a master's degree. So when I moved to Chicago, they bumped me down to level one. I also found that customers in Chicago are a lot different from New Jersey. At least at first they were. I could get loads of thanks from a student in Chicago whose scores improved drastically only to be stabbed in the back later and told how horrible I was when final evaluations came back. I remember one student, I'll call her April, not her real name. I tutored her for the GRE. Now, back then, the GRE was scored just like the SAT. Each section was a score of 200 to 800, so 1,600 total. Now, our guarantee for GRE was basically that your score would improve. So basically, if you came to Joe Bob's with a score of 1210 on your GRE, if you took the GRE and you got a 1220, we did our job, according to the guarantee. Of course, that's assuming that you never missed a session, you did all the homework, you took all the diagnostic tests, and you took the real test within 30 days of completing Joe Bob's test prep. For SAT, which was also on a 1,600-point scale, we guaranteed 100 points of improvement. Remember, the GRE has the same scoring, up to 1,600 points. After I worked with April, her GRE score improved by 160 points. That is honkin' huge. Well, I got an email from the office uh, regarding the final evaluation that April sent after she got her score. Even though she reported a 160-point improvement on a scale of 1 through 10, she rated me a 0. Again, despite the fact that I helped her improve by 160 points. There were some pretty outrageous claims, including that she showed me a math problem she was having trouble with and that I did not know how to do it. Well, that was absolutely wrong. I'm not saying she lied. I think she was trying to say something she really didn't mean to say. Um, I remember once she showed me a math problem that she didn't know how to do that she saw in a rival company's test prep book. And I commented, well, uh, just be warned because it's not from our materials, so it's not a problem that I have seen before. That's probably what she was referring to. And uh, by the way, I did work it out and came to the same answer that was in the back of the book, and I was able to explain it. 
I was never late for any of our meetings. I kept in touch with her regularly. She was always really nice to me. In fact, I still don't have any hard feelings about April despite all that. It just really sticks out so much. In her evaluation, she said, Now, Sean's a nice guy and I don't want him to get fired, but he wasn't a good tutor and he wasn't much help. Uh, yeah, I guess uh, that 160-point score improvement didn't uh, do anything for you. There were a couple of more situations like that, and uh, to this day, 15 years later, I deny that it was necessarily my fault because in the years of teaching and tutoring in New Jersey, I never once had a single complaint. Well, uh, except from Ronnie in my first SAT course. But here I was being backstabbed by people whose scores shot up significantly. So the executive director in the Chicago office decided that any courses and tutorials I was scheduled for would be taken away from me except what I was already in progress with. She told me, well, maybe you're just being overworked. But I know exactly what was going on. Now, remember how I said I wanted to work full-time for Joe Bob? Well, I eventually did land a full-time job, and eventually I got a promotion that moved me to Chicago. But it was in a different division from test prep, and we shared an office with test prep. And that division used to be under test prep, so the executive director used to run it. But when they spun it off, there was kind of a territory war that uh, the executive director decided to start. So I think that whole thing was just part of this little turf war. <laughs> and uh, the executive director wasn't really shy about this turf war either. This dissatisfaction, despite my score improvement, happened yet again after April. I was working with an ACT student. Now, the ACT, if I remember correctly, the score range is 1 through 36. Your final score is based on an average of the sections on the ACT. Your math score, your science score, your reading score, your grammar score, and all those are on a range of 1 to 36. We guaranteed a three-point improvement. Doesn't sound like much, but again, that is an average that means that you really have to score, what, 12 points higher to get that three-point improvement? But anywho, I had an ACT student come to me with an existing score of 26. I worked with him for, I think, five tutoring sessions. The next time he took his ACT, he scored 31. In case you don't do math very well, that is a five-point improvement, which is freaking huge for the ACT. And remember, we promised three points. The student was happy with it, but his father was not. He said he wanted his kid to get at least a 33, even after I explained to him how we only guaranteed three points and that it's very difficult to get that three points. But somehow, despite the father's dissatisfaction, when the evaluation came in, the folks in the office actually overlooked the father's complaint and saw that the kid went from a 26 to a 31. Somehow, I got a much different reaction from what I got from April's feedback. I'm not even exaggerating. Several staffers at the Chicago office congratulated me on that kid's five-point improvement. And the executive director emailed me a congratulatory note saying, I knew you could be a gem. Yeah, good grief. Don't get me wrong, I had some good experiences tutoring in Chicago, too. Uh, I once had a GRE student whom I'll call Blanche. Uh, that's not her real name. I mean, after all, this was 2010, not 1930. And uh, Blanche was looking for a grad program in museum anthropology. Talk about a specialized program. <laughs> Blanche was hugely into art. I always carried my laptop with me when teaching test prep, but I seldom actually used it. It was more of a just-in-case kind of a thing. Well, during one session, Blanche asked me something very specific about administration of the GRE, and it was something I just plain didn't know. So I pulled out my laptop to look it up. 
I had stickers all over that sucker, including a still-pissed-at-Yoko bumper sticker I bought at Beetlefest. Blanche said, what do you have against Yoko? She's my favorite performance artist. Well, the truth is, I have nothing against Yoko. I, uh, I just had that sticker because it made me laugh, that's all. But the night of our last session, Blanche gave me a jar of homemade butterscotch as a thank you gift. I, I guess because paying a crap ton of money for uh, test prep services wasn't enough, but still, it was really nice of her. I'm not a butterscotch fan. I don't like butterscotch, but I gotta tell you, that stuff was freaking delicious. A few months later, Blanche emailed me to let me know that she got into Columbia. Uh, those of you listening in Chicago, uh, she meant Columbia University in New York, not Columbia College in Chicago. It's not just the material that makes these tests unfair, but it's also a severe lack of equity. Test prep courses with any company, whether it be Joe Bob's Test Prep, Kaplan, Huntington, um, Princeton Review, any of them, they're going to be expensive. So basically, most of my students came from affluent families. Now, the company did offer compact versions of the courses in school districts as after-school programs. They got into partnerships with districts, and uh, but the fact that those kids were not getting the full course was a little bit bothersome. But one time they had me teach a couple of sessions at one of these courses in inner city Trenton. And I got to tell you something. When I taught those sessions, I dealt with the nicest kids ever. I think they grew up just not being told that college is an option. And I think just the fact that people were coming over to give them these free prep courses was enough to maybe make them very appreciative. I'd go over these weird math techniques. You can do that? How is that? Po oh my God, that's amazing. Why don't they just teach this stuff? And after each session, I got a thank you from every single one of those kids as they were leaving the room. So again, think about these poor inner city kids who probably were never told they could go to college. And then there's the opposite. The kids who go to private schools where the tuition is in the $30,000 neighborhood per year. Probably more now. One of the last kids I tutored in New Jersey went to one of those schools. I was on my way out to his house one night when I got a call from his mom asking if they could reschedule because he didn't make the lacrosse team and was too distraught to do SAT prep. I had another student I tutored who also went to one of those schools, and actually I met him at his school for his sessions. Before we started, he was venting about how the school was just plagued with problems. He said, my parents are blowing 30 grand a year on this place and it's a huge waste of money. Well, students themselves could be good at wasting money, too. Um, I told you about Kowalski not once, but twice not showing up a course that was paid for. High school students were good at canceling tutoring appointments at the last minute. It was company policy that if it became a habit, then the tutor, at the tutor's discretion, can charge the student for an hour if the session is canceled. One of the first students assigned to me as a tutor kept canceling every single time, and it got so annoying that I told her that if she does it again she would be charged. She said, you know what? I don't care. Do you know how crappy I'm doing in school? My grades suck. I'll be lucky if I can get into Brookdale. Uh, Brookdale being Brookdale Community College in Lincroft, New Jersey. Um, I actually have an associate's in webmaster administration from there. Um, Brookdale's actually a really good school. <laughs> I never did meet with that student. About a year after I moved to Chicago, I was working with a high school student in the suburbs. It turned out she'd be my last high school student. Uh, we didn't have a huge market for high school out in Chicago. After that, all my work was exclusively grad programs like GRE and GMAT. But anyway, the office warned me that this student was going to be a handful. 
So when I talked with her to establish a preliminary schedule, she went through what was already in her schedule. She said, oh, let's see, I have school till 3, driver's ed on Tuesdays, anger management on Wednesdays. Um, anger management? Eek. Because she seemed to be such a handful, I referred to her as Hurricane Katrina. I didn't call her that to her face, but that's how I referred to her. And uh, the actual Hurricane Katrina was still in recent memory, so I figured it was a timely secret nickname to use with her. Um, I gotta tell you, though, when I met with her, she was great to work with. She was really nice, very intelligent, and she definitely wanted to do what she needed to do to get her SAT score up. Hurricane Katrina told me that she was an avid reader and that when she was a little kid, her parents would reward her with a trip to the bookstore if she sat down and watched two episodes of Schoolhouse Rock. Um, not being a parent myself, I gotta say, that is the way to raise a kid, boy howdy. But one night when I was on my way to one of our last appointments, just a few minutes from her house, I got a call from Hurricane Katrina's father. Um, the traffic light had just turned red, so it was safe to take the call. He said, hey, um, Sean, um, do you have an appointment with Katrina tonight? I said, yeah. He said, I thought so. Um, thing is, um, I, I don't know where she is. So we had to reschedule. During the time I was working with Hurricane Katrina, the Chicago Bulls were doing particularly well. So one night when I met with her, her whole family was over to watch the game. When Katrina let me in, her grandmother came to me and said, you must be I'm so happy to finally meet you! Uh, no, Grandma, this is Sean. He's uh, my tutor. I found out that Rick was Katrina's boyfriend. Now, I was 32 years old at the time. Hurricane Katrina, I remind you, was in high school. So either I looked young for my age, or Katrina's parents were very liberal with whom she was allowed to date. Another night when I arrived for our appointment, Hurricane Katrina was on the phone. Her dad let me in, and I heard this end of the conversation. So I told the cop, you can't handcuff me unless you have a warrant. Oh, the tutor's here. Gotta go. Love you, Mom. She hung up and turned to me and said, yeah, my mom's in Florida for the week. I did not ask any questions. I did not want to know. Thankfully, she did not choose to bring anything up. <laughs> we just went on with our session. A few months after our last session, I got an email from Hurricane Katrina. She said, hey, Teach, what do you think of this score? She always called me Teach. I don't remember what she got in her SAT, but I seem to remember she did well enough to get into her target schools. Hadn't heard from her after that. In fact, it's rare that I actually heard from any of my students after the last session, despite repeated pleading to keep in touch and let me know how they do. One time during one of our at least annual trips to New Jersey, Lisa wanted to go to the Dairy Queen in Belmar for some reason. It was the one and only time in the so far 22 years we've been married that we went to a Dairy Queen. While we were in line, somebody poked me in the back. I turned around, and it was someone that I had tutored for the SAT four years prior, and she was there with her dad. It was truly great to see her. She was the best student I ever had. And someone else who tutored her before me had the same feeling. She told me she got into UPenn. Her father said, yeah, that was her second choice. Her first choice was Princeton. He said, thank you for only getting her into her second choice school. I agreed to pay for her tuition, and UPenn is a lot less expensive than Princeton. Maybe four or five years ago, I was crossing the street outside my apartment on my way to work. As usual, I was listening to my iPod, and I had my Sony headphones on. Now, let me make this perfectly clear. When someone has headphones on, that should be a universal do-not-disturb signal. If I have headphones on, it means do not try to talk to me. 
I am focused on music or podcasts. As I was crossing, there was this woman just waving at me. I waved back just to be friendly and didn't know who she was, but she kept waving and more and more intensely as she was trying to get my attention. I just tried to ignore her. It's like, dude, I got headphones on. But she actually walked right in front of me and tried to get my attention. Good grief, what the heck is this going to be about? I took my headphones off and she said, you probably don't remember me, but we met several years ago. Immediately, I'm thinking, what kind of scam is this? Long lost friend, stranded, needs money? She said, you were my boyfriend's MCAT teacher. Ah, it then hit me. I said, Lisa, so nice to see you. Yeah, it's been a long time. Yep, I remembered her now. Her boyfriend, Ali, lived across the street from me, and he was a student in one of the first MCAT courses I taught after I moved to Chicago when I was teaching a course down at UIC. And when Ali introduced me to her, that name Lisa stuck in my mind because, well, of course, my wife has the same name. I said, how's Ali doing? She said, oh, he's doing great. He just finished up his residency at Rush. Two questions came to mind right away. Number one, why are you telling me this, but I haven't heard a peep from Ali? And number two, why are you still just his girlfriend? You two have been together since at least 2006. I asked just one of those questions out loud. I actually do see Ali once in a while when I ride my bike past his apartment and I wave to him. I think he's impressed that I still remember his first and last name after all these years. It's been, God, it's been almost 16 years. But I realize I'm talking for a long time. Um, I was officially employed by Joe Bob's Test Prep as an instructor and tutor for 17 years. When I first started, it was because I desperately needed the money. And indeed, it helped keep a roof over my head during an almost three-year stretch of unemployment. And it helped again years later when I was laid off a couple of times. Even otherwise gainfully employed, I kept teaching test prep. The extra money was nice, especially because I still had a lot of huge debts I had to pay down. But I gotta tell you, it really was a lot of fun. Despite the helicopter parents of some SAT students, some backstabbing in my first year in Chicago. Now, Chris, who would eventually become my boss when I did work full-time for the company, said on multiple occasions that if you're a teacher for Joe Bob's test prep and you're not having fun, then you're doing something wrong and you should not be doing it. But it was absolutely fun, and I met a lot of really great people, both students and staff of Joe Bob's. But reality also hits you, though. When you commit to teach a course once or twice a week for two months, or to work one-on-one -on -one with a student who could cancel at any time, that takes a lot of energy out of you. It got to the point that the office would call me and ask if I could, say, teach a GRE course in Evanston. Well, let's see, I work 9 to 5 during the week, and I suppose I could get to Evanston, but then I'd have to rely on the red line and the purple line to run on time, or I'd have to drive and hope to get a parking spot, or I could take my bike and try not to sweat too much, and maybe have to sacrifice some of my weekend or miss out on an event or two. But thing is, I thought, no, I just want to relax. I kept turning down courses and tutorials. One day in 2019, I got an email offering me a GMAT course that I could easily get to, and it definitely fit within my schedule. And it occurred to me that it had been a long time since I agreed to teach something, so I should probably accept it. So I said, sure, I'll teach it. And then they responded, oh, wait, we see that you haven't taught for us in over a year. You need to be retrained before you can teach again. Can we sign you up for a training? I thought about it and said, nah. In fact, I would like to respectfully ask that you take this as my resignation. After all, while the extra money would be nice, sometimes my time is more valuable. And I'm not saying I'll never want to do test prep again. It's just that right now, there are other things that I'd like to do. Like, for example, this. This.
I could have gone on for so much longer, and I realized that I was going on for quite a long time, so I just better get a move on. By the way, a couple of weeks after I finished that first SAT course in Freehold, I got an email from Anita, and she said, Hey, I just wanted to let you know I got my $50 for referring you. I treated myself to a nice lunch. And I said, good for you. I truly was happy that she did that. But anyway, let's change things up a little bit and talk about music. Those of you who have been listening to this podcast regularly probably saw coming what I'm about to talk about here. Recently lost one of my musical heroes, a pioneer in country rock, even though I really don't like country at all, but still, hell of a songwriter, hell of a musician, and it's my honor to present to you this edition of Music for Schnooks, which is a edition of Don't Meet Your Heroes, and I'm going to call this particular version of Don't Meet Your Heroes, Nine and a Half Times Blue. I have two musical heroes whom I thought for sure I'd never get to see in concert because, well, they just didn't go out much. Brian Wilson notoriously retired from touring as 1964 came to an end because he wanted to spend more time writing, recording, and producing. Then there were the mental health issues, of course. Mike Nesmith didn't do Monkey's reunion concerts because, quite simply, he had other interests and businesses that kept him busy, so he just wasn't that interested in hitting the road. It wasn't totally unheard of for either of them to do the occasional concert. After all, even after his retirement from the road, Brian Wilson still made sporadic appearances with the Beach Boys and did return to touring with the band for a few years. Nesmith famously reunited with the other three monkeys at the Greek Theater in Hollywood in 1986 and went on tour with them in 1997 to promote their album Just Us. But for both of those popular songwriters, those were by far the exceptions rather than the rule. Of course, the shock of all shocks was when Brian Wilson embarked on a solo tour in 1999, something completely unheard of. Even after the memorable show we saw, my wife and I were sure that Brian would never agree to do a tour again. Oh, we have little faith. He's been touring pretty much consistently ever since, barring the occasional pandemic or two, of course. But in 2012, Michael Nesmith posted on Facebook that he had a huge announcement he was about to make. Shortly after that, he posted the huge announcement. He made, and I quote, the most amazing gazpacho. He went into detail about the red peppers and other subtle touches he made to this so-called miracle gazpacho. He ended the post by saying, And Mickey, Peter, and I are going to do 12 concerts in November here in the States. Whoa. Wait, what? Whoa! The Monkees, November 16th. My parents' wedding anniversary. Chicago Theater. Um, I'm sure they'll understand if I have to miss their anniversary for this. <laughs> but man, all I gotta do is take the red line to Lake Street and I'm there. I'd never seen a Monkees concert of any kind before, so I never got to see Davy Jones, which that doesn't really bother me because I'm not much of a Davy fan. But Nez? Wow. I never thought I'd get this chance. When Mickey, Peter, and Mike were announced individually at the beginning of the show, Mike by far got the biggest ovation. Clearly, I was not the only one champing at the bit for this moment. And what a treasure trove of songs I got to hear him sing. Papa Jean's Blues, Sweet Young Thing, 
You told me, sunny girlfriend, you just may be the one. Tapioca Tundra, Circle Sky, what am I doing hanging round? Listen to the band. A year and a half later, when I saw that monkey's lineup at the now-defunct Star Plaza Theater in Merrillville, Indiana, I also got to hear Nez sing at the door into summer. In between those two monkeys shows, I saw all three of them do solo performances, including Mike at the Old Town School of Folk Music in 2013. It was um, an interesting show. Clearly, he wanted to focus on his post-monkeys career, but he knew very well that he wouldn't get away with doing a show if he didn't do at least one monkeys song, so just to get it out of the way, he started the show with Papa Jean's Blues. of the show pretty much went chronological from his career with the first national band in 1970 and continued up through the 90s if not beyond each song he performed had some kind of introduction a little story he'd tell but they were all generally the same really it would start with some kind of a setting like maybe the kitchen at a restaurant and there would be a guy maybe doing dishes or something and he'd turn around and suddenly see a girl and their eyes would meet. Now, the songs weren't actually about these situations. It was just a way that Mike was kind of making up stories to uh, introduce the songs and make the songs part of the stories. But it was a very odd, yet interesting and enjoyable concert. Not long before Peter Tork died, Nez got together with Mickey Dolenz for another tour, this time officially called The Monkees Present The Mike and Mickey Show. I like that billing. It still had the monkey's name, but it was also clear that it was only two of the guys. And what a show it was, too. They cut the tour short, though, when Mike had to have emergency surgery. In fact, he actually had to be admitted to the ER during the tour's Chicago stop. He had been experiencing shortness of breath quite a lot in the middle of shows, apparently. In a recently published interview, Nez said that he didn't want to get the surgery, but his kids nagged him into doing it. Dad, you're going to die if you don't get the surgery. A couple of months after he had that bypass surgery, Nez launched a new tour with a band he called First National Band Redux. The purpose was to emphasize the music of his groundbreaking First National Band albums. His sons Christian and Jonathan were in the band playing guitar, and Christian's wife Cersei Link was in the band as a background vocalist. Ace Hollywood steel guitar player Red Rhodes was always Nez's go-to steel guitar guy, but unfortunately he died in the 90s, so Mike recruited the talented Pete Finney to play the pedal steel guitar. And if I remember correctly, he played a regular guitar too on stage, but uh, anyway, the Chicago stop on the tour was at my beloved Old Town School of Folk Music on September 13th, 2018. I remember that show quite well, too. When Mike took the stage in a nudie cone style suit, he looked like he was having difficulty walking. Obviously, he still hadn't fully recovered from his surgery. But once he started performing, he was absolutely on fire. He opened with the title track from First National Band's third album, Nevada Fighter, or as he said, Nevada Fighter. And then the band followed that up with the first four tracks from the group's debut album, Magnetic South, Calico Girlfriend, Nine Times Blue, Little Red Rider, and The Crippled Lion. Let me tell you, Little Red Rider sounded fan-freaking-tastic. At one point in the show, 
Mike was left by himself on the stage, and he talked about playing four songs at the Troubadour before his career took off and the rousing ovation he received that night. Apparently, on some tour stops, when he told the story, he actually welled up. If I'm not mistaken, the Troubadour songs were Papa Jean's Blues, Propinquity, Nine Times Blue, and Different Drum. The latter, of course, would become a hit for Linda Rodstadt's group, The Stone Ponies. He told the story of how he performed those songs at the Troubadour, and with every additional song he sang, he got a louder ovation. People in the crowd were yelling for more, but unfortunately, he only had those four songs at that point. Now, the thing is, that night when Nez told the story, he specifically said it happened in 1970, which of course is dead wrong. Given that by 1970, he had a huge catalog of songs that uh, he both wrote and recorded already. It was likely closer to 1964 that the Troubadour show happened, but nonetheless, that night at the Old Town School, when he sang Papa Jean's Blues, the entire audience sang along loudly with the chorus, including his son Jonathan, who had a big, huge smile on his face. Jonathan was sitting off in the wings. But anyway, rather than give a further blow-by-blow account of the show, let me get to the don't-meet-your-heroes part. During this tour, Mike was doing meet-and-greets for an additional fee. Now, here's the thing. Starting sometime in the late 80s or early 90s, Lisa managed to get Davy Jones and Peter Tork's autographs on a couple of Monkees singles on the Cold Gems label, specifically on songs that have their vocals. Davy's autograph ended up on her Daydream Believer single, and Peter's autograph on Words, which, for those of you who don't know, was the B-side of the hit Pleasant Valley Sunday. I don't remember where she managed to acquire these autographs. I think off the top of my head, Davey was doing a book signing somewhere, and Peter did a non-performing personal appearance. But I don't remember, and unfortunately, Lisa is not uh, with me at the moment, so I can't really ask her right now. But anyway, she wanted to get Mickey Dolan's autograph on As We Go Along, which was the B-side of Porpoise Song. After getting Mickey's autograph, she would consider her collection complete. After all... She also thought she'd never have an opportunity to see Mike in person. Now, three of the monkeys, Mickey, Peter, and Davey, appeared on the Today Show in August 1997 to promote the Just Us album. Lisa went to that taping, and in fact, if you were to watch that episode of the Today Show, you can actually see a quick glance of her on camera during Last Train to Clarksville. Uh, She's wearing a white t-shirt with a monkey's logo on it, and she's holding the Porpoise Song picture sleeve. She hoped that she would be able to get Mickey to sign the record for her that day. And indeed, when the guys weren't playing, Davey and Peter would walk around, chat with fans, pose for pictures, sign autographs. But Mickey? Nope. He just sat behind the drums, looking like he'd rather be anywhere else. Lisa said it looked like he was not a morning person at all. She yelled over to him, Hey Mickey, can I get your autograph? He said, Not now, maybe later. Well, later didn't happen that day. I don't believe she had another chance to get Mickey's autograph since until we went to his solo show in 2014 at the Arcata Theater in St. Charles, Illinois. There were two performances, one by the Cowsills and then one by Mickey, followed by a Q&A with both Mickey and the Cowsills. Well, Lisa took the opportunity to ask Mickey a couple of questions. She prefaced her questions by talking about going to see the Monkees on the Today Show in 1997. Now, Mickey, um, between songs, when Davey and Peter were out in the crowd, you just stayed behind the drums and you just didn't look well. Are you not a morning person? And Mickey responded, let me tell you something. 
I am not a morning person, and in fact, I'm not even a noon person. If you go to my house at 11 in the morning, you're going to find my wife and me in bed. <laughs> Lisa continued. I asked you to sign my record that day, but you said maybe later. Well, it's 17 years later, so how about now? Now, the Q&A was moderated by a guy named Ron Onesti. He's basically in charge of bringing Axe to the Arcada, and he does a hell of a job, too. He brings in some really big names there. After Lisa said, how about now, Ron gestured for her to come up to the stage. Mickey said, okay, but just this one. Because <laughs> apparently he didn't want everybody in the whole freaking crowd to come. Hey, Mickey, can you sign this? So she finally got her Mickey autograph, and she gave him a quick thank you hug after that. But when Lisa found out that Mike was doing a meet and greet at the first national band shows, she made the executive decision that I was going to the meet and greet. Not both of us, because, well, we couldn't afford two meet and greet passes, and uh, not her, because, as she claimed, there was no way she'd be able to keep her cool, which I totally disagreed with. I thought she kept her cool really well when we got a picture with Peter Tork five years earlier. She was very level-headed when she met Tom Wolfe, one of her literary heroes. And God knows how, but she was also very level when we met Brian Wilson. Well, of course, later on, she completely lost it an hour later when we were walking down Broadway in a delayed reaction. <laughs> but still, Lisa also reasoned that it would probably make more sense for me to be the one to uh, meet him, given how it's a First National Band show and I'm more knowledgeable about First National Band than she is. Uh, not by much, by the way. So, my assignment, go to the meet and greet after the show and get Mike's signature on Lisa's Good Clean Fun single. Of course, it was a meet and greet, not just a signing, so I had to think of something to talk about. Hmm, should I tell him about my weird Nesmith playlist on my iPod? Or maybe tell him about my idea to form a cover band that does First National Band songs ballroom style? Uh, the name of the band, by the way, well, of course it would be Tango Amore. Nah, no, nah, not that, not that. Ooh, I got it. I know what I'll talk to him about. But um, anyway, the concert happens, and then afterwards I get in line for the meet and greet. We were all ushered back into the auditorium and asked to grab a seat. Then a few minutes later, we were asked to leave the auditorium and form a line in the hallway. After a few more minutes, we were escorted into a large classroom, a classroom where the Beatles ensemble usually meets. We all stood in line for a few minutes, and suddenly Mike walks in through the same door we all entered through. He had changed out of his nudie suit, and he was now wearing jeans and a black t-shirt. He stopped and said, wow, what a turnout. Indeed, it was huge. There are a lot of people, well, definitely over a hundred. I don't remember what all he said, but what he did say instantly made everybody feel comfortable and relaxed. Lisa could have gone to this meet and greet and kept her cool really easily. I watched Nesmith as he interacted with the people in front of me. He couldn't have been friendlier. When it got to my turn, I handed my phone to Nez's assistant, Melody. I sat down next to Mike and said, Hello, sir. My name's Sean. It's an honor to meet you. He said, Oh, well, hello to you, sir. I said, There were a few things I was considering saying to you if I ever got to meet you, so uh, let me tell you this story. I know you have a lot of people to get to, so I'll be as brief as possible. Now, I told him the story I'm about to tell all of you, but you're going to be hearing a much more detailed version than what I told Nez. Um, again, I wanted to keep it short. Quite frequently, I took a songwriting course at the Old Town School taught by a wonderful teacher named Sue DeMel. She has a way of getting people to write the best songs they have in them. 
She moved to the Upper Peninsula of Michigan some time ago, so she doesn't really teach that much anymore, maybe once or twice a year, due to the uh, long distance, of course. Of course, in the pandemic time, she can do it remotely. But anyway, nowadays her songwriting class is based on the teachings of Italo Calvino, but the specific time I was telling Mike about was when she was teaching a songwriting course called The Creative Process. One of the assignments she would regularly give in that class was to take an existing song, that is, a song written by someone else, essentially a cover, and write a new second verse to it. The point of that exercise was to get to know the song well enough that you could write a new verse to it. Well, one of the times I took that class, I decided to do Nesmith's Nine Times Blue. It's a short song with only two verses as it is. Uh, my favorite recording of Nine Times Blue is from Nez's Time with the Monkeys, circa 1968-69. And uh, the way that recording of the song goes, it's first verse, chorus, second verse, chorus, repeat the second verse, and that's it. Although usually in Sue's class, people would just do the first verse and then the second verse that they wrote, I decided that because the song was short enough, I'd do the whole thing, but I would go first verse, chorus, my new second verse, and then Mike's already existing second verse. Uh, by the way, just as a fun fact for you, uh, the version that Mike eventually did release was on First National Band's Magnetic South album, but it was super short on that album. It went first verse, chorus, second verse, and then a little transition into Little Red Rider. But I liked the other version better. Anyway, when it was my turn to present the song, I said, okay, I chose Nine Times Blue by Michael Nesmith. Uh, Sue said, hey, I'm not really familiar with that song, but let's hear what you did with it. So I picked up my 12-string, and here's what I did. There's a certain something in the way you looked at me And said you'd stay that let me know that I was out of line And I didn't know what else to do And like a fool I tested you by demanding things of you that weren't mine And now I feel like such a fool for making you crawl back to me But you did it with such love that you're standing far above me and all I did to you I'm sorry now what can I do And after all my song and dance you've given me A second chance to prove we can be more than just good friends I really should think more of you And now I know to sing to you the same song of love that never ends Cause now I feel such a fool After I finished, Sue said, I didn't know a monkey knew how to write music. Now, when I told Mike that part of the story, he laughed out loud. The 2018 Michael Nesmith seemed to be a very humble guy, but I have a feeling that if I told him that same story in, uh, oh, 1967, he wouldn't have laughed. In fact, he very likely would have punched me in the face. Sue's reaction to my verse was that although she didn't know the song, she felt that it fit. It works for me, were her exact words. 
She told me that someday I have to do that song again, but in 3-4 time. That was, I think, 2010 when this all happened. As of 2018, I still hadn't figured out how to do that. Nez told me, well, good luck with that. That's a hard song to do in 3-4 time. Indeed it is. It's over three years since Mike told me that, and I still haven't found a way to do it in 3-4 time. After I told Nez that story, he signed an 8x10 glossy picture that's of him in the nudie suit with his back turned. Uh, the way he posed, it looked like he was at a urinal or something. I'll, I'll uh, post a picture of that in the online bibliography at schnookpodcast.com. Then I handed him Lisa's Good Clean Fun single, and I asked him to make it out to Lisa. He signed it, I thanked him, collected my phone from Melody, and went on my way. Melody basically spent the entire time I was talking to Nez constantly snapping pictures on my phone, and I'm glad she did, because in all but one of the pictures, I looked like a puffy, stubby-armed Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade balloon. Strange, uh, because I don't have stubby arms at all. Puffy, sure. Stubby arms, no. There was one picture that didn't make me look awful, and I'll share that with you all. Lisa said that if you didn't know any better, you would swear by looking at the picture that Mike was going over my taxes with me or something, and uh, I can kind of see that. Also, Lisa looked at the record and saw that it appeared to be made out not to her, but to me. Truth is, depending on how you look at it, the signature could have either my name or Lisa's name. I'll post a picture of that too, so uh, you can see what I'm talking about. But she honestly didn't care whose name was on it. All she cared was that she now had all four monkeys' autographs on Cold Gem's singles. I told her what a calming presence he had and how friendly and down-to-earth he was, and she easily would have been calm and level-headed with him, but she stood by her decision. Now, having said that, for her birthday in 2020, Lisa paid for a Zoom session with Nez, and it was pretty well organized. Zoom sessions were offered on Mike's website, so Lisa reached out to Melody to verify that he was available on her birthday. The rule was you had 30 minutes to talk with him, and if you buy something from his Video Ranch website, he would autograph it for you on camera so you knew for sure that he was the one signing it. It wasn't stamped or auto-pen or anything like that. Well, Lisa didn't find anything in the store that she was interested in, so she asked me if I wanted anything, and I was like, yeah, let's get that uh, box set that uh, has all of his uh, post monkeys catalog in it and uh, it was surprisingly inexpensive and i wanted to upgrade the other box set that i already had so anyway the zoom session starts and they have a couple of minutes of small talk hey lisa nice to meet you where are you uh, calling me from and etc etc and he said what do you do for a living she told him i'm a high school teacher now for the next 20 minutes the conversation was about education Mike was very interested in what she did as a teacher, and he recommended that she go to YouTube and seek out the graduation speech delivered by David Foster Wallace, and uh, damned if I can remember what else they talked about during that 20-minute uh, stretch. But at one point, Lisa abruptly changed the subject and said, oh, is that a picture of your dog next to you? Indeed it was. It was a picture of Nez's dog, Dale, who had uh, recently crossed the Rainbow Bridge, unfortunately. So Mike talked about how much he missed Dale and what a wonderful dog she was, and uh, they talked about dogs for a few more minutes. Half an hour on the dot, Mike brought the conversation to a close to make way for the next Zoom meeting he was scheduled for. And sure enough, right then and there, he autographed the box set on camera, and uh, that was that. After that, Lisa said she understood why I said he had a calming presence, and she was quite happy with the chat that she had with him, but she did not want to talk about work for half an hour. 
This was literally the first day of her winter break, and the last thing she wanted to talk about was education, hence the sudden change in conversation to Dale the dog. Thankfully, we were able to see the Mike and Mickey show a couple of more times. In addition to the 2018 show, we saw the same show again in New Buffalo in 2019. There was another tour scheduled for 2020, but we all know what happened. When the dates were rescheduled for 2021, it was billed as a farewell tour, and we saw that they would be doing a show at the Riverside Theater in Milwaukee on Saturday, November 6th. Well, I happened to already plan to be in Milwaukee that weekend for Midwest Gaming Classic, which was happening literally two blocks away from the Riverside, so this was a no-brainer. And man, it was a great show. Fans had been expressing concern about Mike Nesmith, though, because he did not look well during the first shows of the tour. He had trouble walking on stage, and he had to use a cane. He looked frail and aged. Later on in the tour, it appeared he was doing better, and in fact, by the time the show got to Milwaukee, you'd never know anything, at least as far as I'm concerned, you'd never know anything was wrong with him. The only thing unusual about him, as far as I was concerned, was that he didn't play any instruments during the show at all. At any other Nesmith show, you could count on him playing his prized custom-made Gretsch 12 string. Apparently he had been having back problems and they were exacerbated if he played guitar on stage. But other than that, he looked and sounded great. Fantastic show all around. Well, except I'm a believer. I can't freaking stand that song. I'm so sick of it. I remember December 9th, 2021, somebody posted a message on the Zilch Podcast Facebook page expressing concern about Mike after seeing some YouTube videos of the shows from the earlier parts of the tour. Now, there had been a group of fans drawing conclusions of elder abuse based on some circumstantial evidence, so a lot of people pounced on this guy for raising a concern. How dare you say he doesn't look healthy? How And basically, this guy didn't say anything about suspected elder abuse or any other situation like that. He just expressed concern. So I said to these people, look, the dude is just concerned about Mike. That's it. No accusations, no finger pointing. Nothing wrong with being concerned about somebody's well-being. Well, the very next day, Trusted Monkey's manager and author, Andrew Sandoval, announced that Nez had died. So I posted a message on the Zilch page that said something along the lines of, all you who ever attacked anybody who raised a concern about Mike's health, screw you all to hell. I don't remember the exact words, but that last part, screw you all to hell, was absolutely there. Not surprisingly at all, that post got deleted, and a moderator messaged me privately and said, let's keep it positive today, Sean. But, yeah, he was gone. He died from heart failure. From what I understand, he went to the hospital about a week earlier, and I think he was told that there was a good chance he wasn't going to survive, so he asked to be brought back home. He didn't want to die in a hospital. I heard that he went into hospice a couple of days before he died. Now, there was an article recently published in Rolling Stone that includes interviews with both Nez and Andrew Sandoval. And in that article, Andrew Sandoval actually called out the people who were trying to say that Mike was being abused, he was being exploited and all this. He said, absolutely not. He was not being mistreated in any way. It's unfounded. 
From what I understand, the explanation for why he didn't look like he was doing very well at the beginning of that tour was quite simply because he was extremely inactive during the pandemic shutdown, and basically he was so inactive that his muscles kind of atrophied. According to that article, his family didn't want him to do anything. They told him, don't go out, just stay home. And Mike said, well, I guess I can do that. I have enough money that I can just hire people to go and do my errands for me. So that's exactly what he did. Anyway, when I read the announcement from Andrew Sandoval that morning, I just kind of sat stunned for a minute or two. And I thought, well, thank God we went to that Milwaukee show. Lisa actually came down with a nasty stomach illness that Friday, the night before, and we came close to not being able to go to Milwaukee, but thankfully she felt much better the next day. When Peter Twerk died, literally 10 minutes after I found out, I got an email from my friend Bridget. I talked about that moment before, but uh, Bridget was one of my best friends in high school, and to this day is one of my favorite people on the planet. The email message that she sent me was brief, and she just talked about Peter's professionalism and his pureness as a musician. Well, I figured it was my turn this time. Here's the email message I sent to Bridget after I found out, with a subject line of, It cannot be a part of me. The email read, and I quote, Working at home still, but seriously considered just calling it quits early. Well, only half hour early at this point, given my half-day Friday schedule. I just can't concentrate right now. Such a good soul. Never got along with Peter, but made damn sure he got his chance to have some input in the creative direction. Very uptight in, say, 1967, but I think the years severely humbled him. He ended up being quite a thankful character. Relaxing guy to have a conversation with, too. Musical genius? I don't know. Musical talent? Absolutely. Musical hero? For sure. All the best to you and Mike. Um, that is Mike being her husband, by the way. <laughs> Sometime after Peter Twork died, Nez admitted in an interview on Australian TV that he and Twork never had a kind word to say to each other. But uh, what I said to Bridget is true. Mike did make sure that Peter was involved in the creative process. Uh, I think despite not getting along with each other, I think they truly appreciated each other's musical talents. And definitely Nez is one of my musical heroes. I love his songs, as weird as they can be from time to time. Later that night, I got a response from Bridget. She said that she spent the whole day not knowing what the hell I was talking about. Bridget apparently had actually considered going to the Mike and Mickey show in Atlantic City, and you know, she lives outside of Philadelphia, but I guess she was so busy she never even had a chance to get tickets. It was the farewell tour, and Mike probably knew it, she said. I can't say I was necessarily sad over Nesmith no longer being with us, huge loss for sure but it was definitely heartbreaking. He had said that even though it was a farewell tour, he could foresee doing occasional one-off shows with Mickey in the future, and no fewer than three people have said that Nez was considering doing another First National Band tour. Oh man, I would've loved that. Now this is, what, the third time, I think, I had a Don't Meet Your Heroes segment? And it's yet another occasion in which I have to say, why do people always say that? Why do they say Don't Meet Your Heroes? especially with Michael Nesmith, such a friendly guy, and I've yet to meet one of my heroes and regret it. Nobody has ever been rude or nasty to me. It's always been positive. By the way, any Monkees or Nesmith fan listening to this might be curious as to what's on my Weird Nesmith playlist. The reason I call it Weird Nesmith is that Nesmith had a tendency to write songs that uh, sometimes don't actually have the title anywhere in the lyrics. Sometimes the lyrics are just bizarre. Sometimes it's a combination of the two. 
So many of the songs that I put together for my Nesmith playlist fit in those categories, hence the name Weird Nesmith Now, I'll share with you that list, starting with Circle Sky. That's the song that the monkeys performed in concert in their movie Head. Except, um, and I know that this is sacrilege, but I actually have the studio version on my playlist. At the beginning and possibly end of my Circle Sky on the playlist, I spliced in some uh, dialogue from the movie. Sounds like a lot of supernatural baloney to me. Supernatural, perhaps. Baloney, perhaps not. Now, the reason that I chose the studio version, which did not have all the monkeys performing on it, unlike the uh, concert version, is quite simply, I like it better, that's all. The concert version is fine, it's great, but I prefer the studio version. And specifically, it's the studio version from the actual Head album. It's not the uh, remix version that has Mike's vocal way, way, way up front. Next, I have something that definitely fits in that uh, weird Nesmus category, Auntie's Municipal Court. It has both of those little categories I had there. Number one, the phrase Auntie's Municipal Court does not appear in the lyrics anywhere, and number two, the lyrics are just plain weird. Specifically, I have the mono mix on this one. Usually I prefer stereo, but for Auntie's Municipal Court, the mono mix has a lot more punch to it. It's such a great mix. Next, the kind of girl I could love. That song appears on More of the Monkeys, the second album they recorded. Uh, the Monkeys' first two albums were recorded under supervision of musical kingpin, I guess you could call him, Don Kirshner. Don Kirshner had the ability to take anybody off the street and turn that person into a massive hit. He did it many times over, including with the Monkeys. The problem was, as music supervisor, he did not allow the monkeys to have any say whatsoever in the creative process, which the monkeys, especially Nesmith, did not like, because here they are on TV portraying a band. Yeah, they were just actors playing a band, but they were giving the appearance of being an actual band. And in fact, in the credits on their first album, it actually explicitly states that they play their instruments. For Mike, Davey, and Peter, it actually says, plays guitar and sings next to all three of their names. For Mickey, it says, plays drums and sings. And also, Mike himself was an aspiring musician. He had already had um, somewhat of a career as a singer-songwriter before he became one of the Monkees. But Kirshner did allow him control over one song per album site and the kind of girl i could love was co-written by him and it was produced by him for more of the monkeys the version that i use for my playlist though is uh, a remixed version that has a little bit more vocal harmony and i really like the punch that it has i use that punch a lot lately next the girl i knew somewhere not the version that was a hit single i never liked that song because i don't know it just didn't click with me but when I heard an earlier version of it with Mike's vocal instead of Mickey's, and it was in a different key, it worked. It works for me in the key of A, but not Mickey's version, which is in the key of C. Now, the thing about this is uh, this doesn't really fit in any of the weird categories because despite it being a Nesmith song, it actually is pretty straightforward. There are no weird lyrics in it. The title is actually in the lyrics. Same with the kind of girl I could love. Next on my list is Nine Times Blue. This is the version that I prefer. It's uh, 
Those of you who are Monkees fans, this is the version that's on Missing Links Volume 1. I really like that performance of it. It has some nice harmonies in it. And uh, by the way, Nine Times Blue does not have the lyrics in the title. Neither does Tapioca Tundra, the next song on my playlist. I never knew what this song was about until the last time I saw the Mike and Mickey show, just this past November. Mike explained that he wrote the lyrics based on his own personal experience the first time he played on stage with the Monkees. I would never have been able to gather that from the lyrics because the lyrics are very strange. But this is a very popular song among Monkees Nesmith fans. Uh, the version that I use is another remix. This one has a couple of extra vocals on it uh, that you don't hear on the regular version, and the drums are mixed a little bit up too. And Man, it is just criminal how the drums are buried on the actual album version of this song. Oh my god. Because, man, that drummer kicked so much ass. Um, Let me see. I'm going to look up really quickly who the drummer was for that song. Hold on a sec. Eddie Ho. Eddie Ho was the drummer. In fact, they used Eddie Ho a lot for... Uh, their studio recordings after Kirshner was fired. So, okay, that makes sense. That I was going to guess Eddie Ho. And after that, I have St. Matthew, which is a song that never appeared on any kind of album or compilation until 1990, The Monkey's Missing Links Volume 2. It's one of many songs that Mike recorded in Nashville on The Monkey's payroll, if I'm not mistaken. Man, when he and Mickey did this in concert, it sounded so fantastic. Uh, this uh, actually does have the title in the lyrics, but the lyrics, again, are really weird. If I'm not mistaken, uh, Nez said that he wrote St. Matthew based on every Bob Dylan song he ever heard. So he was basically trying to imitate Bob Dylan. Now, the next song on my list, Good Clean Fun, the song that's on the single that Nez autographed for my wife. It's from the album The Monkees Present from 1969. It's uh, the first album that they did that does not have Peter Tork on it. Oh, but you're thinking Instant Replay is the first album without Peter Tork, all you Monkees fans. Technically, no, because one of the songs on the album was recorded in 1966, and Peter actually happened to play on that song. So technically, he was on the Instant Replay album. But anyway... Good Clean Fun does not have the title in the lyrics. Uh, from what I understand, somebody once asked Mike why he has all these songs that don't have the title in the lyrics and why they're so bizarre. He said, why don't you write a song that's just Good Clean Fun? So he literally did that. He wrote a song that's called Good Clean Fun, but you will not find, I don't think, any of those words in the song at all. <laughs> Uh, but anyway, next is another song from The Monkees Present called Never Tell a Woman Yes, another Nesmith song that does not have the title and the lyrics. And in fact, if you listen to the story he tells in that song, the overall message might be just the opposite, but it's a fun song to listen to. It's a little bit on the long side, but uh, really fun. And uh, song number 10 on my Weird Nesmith playlist, Writing Wrongs from The Birds, The Bees, and The Monkees. And this is another song that I took from that album, but in the mono mix. I always found this song really dreary, but the mono mix has a little bit more life to it. It's not quite as dreary. And it's another one of those songs that doesn't have the title in the lyrics anywhere. And uh, it has some of the most random lyrics in the world. For example, have you heard about Bill Chambers' mother? Where'd that come from? After writing wrongs, I have Little Red Rider from the first national band Magnetic South album. Love that song so much. 
It's not really weird at all, which I guess is what's weird about it. So there you go. After that, Naked Persimmon. Now, here's the thing about Naked Persimmon. That is the song that Mike sang on the Monkees' 33 and a Third Revolutions Per Monkey TV special that aired in 1969. The thing about that is, after the Monkees' TV show was canceled after only two seasons, NBC commissioned the Monkees to do three TV specials. This was the first one. And after seeing this special, NBC decided they didn't need the other two. And, uh, yeah, it is the weirdest freaking thing in the world. It is so bizarre, it's borderline unwatchable, seriously. But there are a few good moments in it, and Naked Persimmon is one of them. Oh, by the way, true story, uh, when my wife and I spent Memorial Day weekend, I think it was 2003, in New York City, we went out shopping and uh, the Monkees Complete TV series had just been released on DVD. So we picked it up in uh, one of the stores over in Manhattan. I think it might have been uh, the Virgin Mega Store. So we get back to the hotel room and we're watching it. And um, that box set came with 33 and a third revolutions per monkey. Now, the thing about 33 and a third, well, one of the things about it, first of all, on the West Coast, it aired against the Academy Awards. So it didn't get the ratings at all. In some markets, it was accidentally aired in the wrong order, so something that was already hard to follow was made even worse. And not only that, but there were two different versions of the TV special. One that had good video and bad audio, and another that was the exact opposite, good audio and bad video. And either version, there are all kinds of audio issues in it because apparently there was some kind of strike going on. And uh, so they had to put together a mobile audio unit that they used for the TV special. <laughs> but anyway, the version that was on the DVD was actually a synchronization of the version with the good video and the version with the good audio. But I remember we wanted to watch specifically Mike's scene. It's really done in a cool way. He does kind of a split screen duet sitting in front of a... Uh, a sign that says wanted for fraud, $25,000 reward, an old West kind of thing. And there are two mics. Cause again, he's doing a split screen duet with himself. One in which he's wearing uh, a regular, I don't want to say street clothes cause he's wearing a tie and everything, but you know what I mean? And the other mic is in the nudie suit. So and it, the way, the way it was filmed was really cool. And uh, the song is really cool too. So we're looking for the song and all the chapters are named after the songs that are in the TV special. The thing is, we didn't know the name of the song. So we're cycling through the chapters and we see naked persimmon. We're like, Oh, that's gotta be it. That's, that's such a Nesmith title. If ever there was one. And you guessed it, there is no mention of the phrase naked persimmon anywhere in the lyrics. Unfortunately, Mike never recorded that song formally for anything else but this TV special. It's a really cool song. I can kind of understand why, though, because part of the story, if there is one in 33 and a third, is how the monkeys were under this strict control and they were trying to break free. And one of the lines of naked persimmon was... The Devil Incarnate was running music supervision. <laughs> Gee, I wonder who the Devil Incarnate was supposed to be. After that, I have Calico Girlfriend. Uh, there was a version that Mike did, again, under the Monkey's Dime, but that's not the version I use here. I use the one from the Magnetic South album. I really love it. It's so catchy. It's the most unusual Mike song I ever heard in terms of rhythm and performance and everything, but I love it. Then, after that, I have Mary Mary. Those of you who are not Monkees fans at all, but you remember the Run DMC song, Mary Mary. Mary, Mary, why you bugging? Yeah, 
pretty much the same song, actually, except it's not a rap. In fact, Run DMC sampled from the Monkees. But this is just the standard version from the More of the Monkees album. Uh, again, it's not weird at all. It's written by Mike, but nothing weird about it. The titles and the lyrics, the lyrics are pretty straightforward. And after Mary Mary, Cruisin' from 1979. It's a Mike Solo song. I think the name of the album is Infinite Rider on the Big Dogma. Now, Cruisin' is very dated, but it's also one of the most fun things I ever heard him do. Now, in the early 80s, he released an extended music video called Elephant Parts, and he did a video for Cruisin' in Elephant Parts, and you can find that all over YouTube, so check that out. In fact, I might link that in the uh, online bibliography. Fun video to watch. But after that, You Told Me from the Monkees' Headquarters album, the album that they recorded almost entirely by themselves with very little help from studio musicians. They wrote a good deal of the songs, this was the album they got to record after Don Kirshner was fired from the Monkees Project, and Mike wrote You Told Me. It is a fun song, it's a great song, and um, it sounds kind of like a combination of Dr. Robert and Taxman, so there's definitely some Beatles influence on there. The next song on the list, You Just May Be The One, again from the Headquarters album. Now, here's the thing about that song. It is a massively popular song among Monkees fans. And there were two versions of that, actually. There was one that was used on the TV show in 1966, and then there's the Headquarters version. I much prefer the Headquarters version. And uh, the thing about the TV version is in the episodes that used the song, in the closing credits, it was actually listed as You May Just Be The One. And Monkees fans who are particularly observant looked at that and said, oh, that's a typo. I don't think it is because one of the episodes, Mike himself actually introduced the song. He said, okay, we're going to do a song called You May Just Be The One. So the way I see it, You May Just Be The One is the TV version and You Just May Be The One is the headquarters version. I guess it's kind of the analog to the two different versions of Help Me Rhonda that the Beach Boys recorded. One that was spelled with an H in Rhonda and one that was spelled without an H in Rhonda. But anyway, great song. Love it so much. Nothing weird about it. Straightforward lyrics. Title is in the lyrics. Anyway, uh, another song from headquarters comes up next, Sunny Girlfriend, which... I only in the last 15 years learned that the guitar riff in the beginning of the song and at the end of the song was stolen from the Rolling Stones rendition of It's All Over Now. Very fun song to listen to. It was used in their 1967 tour as well, by the way. And uh, somehow it got past the suits at the networks. Uh, if you really pay attention to the song, you realize that uh, the song is about somebody who's a cokehead. But anyway, um, going on next is uh, Don't Call On Me. Yet another straightforward, not really weird Nesmith song at all, but it's still on my list. But I love it. It's a nice kind of loungy song. I think Mike wrote it back in 1963, and I think he said that it was an experiment in major seventh chords. Now, the version that I use is specifically from the standard 1967 stereo mix of Don't Call On Me. And the reason I'm saying that is because in 1986, when the uh, Pisces, Aquarius, Capricorn, and Jones Limited album was released on Arista Records, the original masters couldn't be located for a lot of songs, so they had to remix and remaster some songs. And the version that was on the 1986 pressing 
the song comes to a complete end before the ambient crowd applauds. On the standard version, the crowd starts applauding before the song comes to a stop. That's the version that I use on this. Next up on the list, another song from Pisces, Aquarius, Capricorn, and Jones Limited, Daily Nightly, which was my introduction as a 13-year-old to psychedelic music. It fits both of those uh, categories of weird Nesmith in that the title is not in the lyrics and the lyrics are kind of bizarre. Now, I think I had read somewhere a quote from Mike saying that he wrote the lyrics based on the night that Pandora's box on the Sunset Strip burned down. He said he just took a notebook out and wrote down everything he observed about that event. Um, more observant people might argue that it's really about prostitution. <laughs> hand in hand, they walk the night but never know each other. Pennies for the vendor. All kinds of other lyrical hints in there that might imply uh, hanging out with a lady of the night, as we should say. Specifically, I use the mono version. The mono and stereo versions differ in uh, some of the Moog sound effects. By the way, it's pronounced Moog, not Moog. And I like the mono version better just because of where the uh, sound effects come in. Um, if you saw the two episodes of the TV show that used it, they use the mono version. That's the one that I use here. Although you don't hear Mickey say psychedelic at the end of it. And um, what Nesmith playlist would end with anything other than the song Listen to the Band? Fun song. It was usually a monkey's concert closer starting in the 80s, or at least the main set would close with it, and uh, quite often they would use it to introduce the backup band. So that's my weird Nesmith playlist, and uh, there are a couple of changes I do need to make to it. For one thing, I need to put some of Shelley's blues in it, and that's going to be from Nesmith's album, pretty much your standard wrench stash. I love that performance of it. It's another song that doesn't have the title in the lyrics anywhere, but I really like it. I don't know where I'm going to put it. Uh, I'm also going to put Papa Jean's blues on it straightforward song but it doesn't have the title and the lyrics and it's a massively popular nesmith song it is a very uniting nesmith song gonna use uh, the standard monkeys version of it uh, also i'm putting it in there so that way i have the um complete blue trilogy in there nine times blue some of shelley's blues papa jean's blues so i guess that was how i would like to pay tribute to one of my musical heroes thank you nez for being a nice guy for writing some great music and just for all the entertainment sounded kind of awkward but hey i'm just a schnook what do you expect something i didn't mention uh, because well everybody mentions it but yes michael nesmith was the heir to betty nesmith's fortune betty of course was the inventor of whiteout the story is that uh, after a parent-teacher conference, she asked the chemistry teacher if she could uh, borrow something in the lab for a moment, and she whipped up a batch there. And also, Nesmith was very instrumental in founding MTV. So thank you all for tuning in. You can uh, listen to past episodes and future episodes, of course, by going to schnookpodcast.com, which is also where the online bibliography is for each episode. There's also a link to a Redbubble store so you can get some uh, autobiography of a schnook merch. I don't plug that often enough. And I promise I'm going to try to use Instagram a little bit more. My handle there and on Twitter is schnookpodcast. I also hang out on Facebook, although the Facebook page isn't active at all, except when there's a new episode out. <laughs> but uh, check it out, facebook.com slash schnookpodcast. 
slash schnookpodcast is very hard to say. Try it. And you can email me at schnookpodcast.com. The sounds and music that you heard in this episode that do not belong to me are the property of their respective copyright holders and meant for commentary and review. Infringement is not intended. If you really miss my voice, you can also hear me with my friend Jim on Pie Factory Podcast, on which we discuss arcade video games from usually the 80s, and my wife Lisa and I co-host a podcast about the Beach Boys called Tune X Podcast, so if you really, really, really miss me a lot, check out those. But in the meantime, just keep in mind that the good goes around in the sound of the sunset and the sound of the sea. All the best, my friends. My friends.